Welcome, Colonial Baptist Church. It's good to be with you here, uh, even if it's just by video. Uh, I hope you are doing well and uh, staying dry. Uh, I hear that uh, there'll be quite some uh, severe storms on our way. Um, and uh, so I I'm glad to be able to preach to you, even if it's uh, through, through video. Since we're back into uh, the auditorium here, at least I am, um, that means, what, no shorts for me, okay? So um, I hope you're enjoying uh, this service in uh, your casual gear at home uh, with your family, uh, but looking forward to working through uh, the next text of Scripture with you. So if you have your Bibles, turn uh, in your Bibles or on your devices to Hebrews 12, and I'm going to be looking uh, today at verses 13 through 17. Last week, uh, we looked at the first part of uh, this paragraph, uh, verse 12. We only looked at that one verse. Uh, but in looking at that one verse, we noticed that the author of Hebrews uh, is encouraging his readers to push forward in their commitments uh, to Jesus Christ. Some of his readers may have been discouraged uh, or fatigued in their walk with God because the text right before this explains God was training them as sons and daughters, and that training involved pers uh, facing persecution for the cause of Christ. So in verse 12, as we saw that last week, the author starts out by imploring them to lift up their drooping hands and to strengthen their weak knees. We noticed last week that this verse actually originally came from a chapter of the Old Testament Scripture. It was in Isaiah chapter 35, and there we learned that Isaiah intended these words originally to encourage his own readers, who were also going through a difficult situation. So both biblical authors addressed spiritually fatigued people. The Israelites were exiled. The author of Hebrews' people were uh, facing persecution. And uh, it's interesting to me that they both give the exact same commands, strengthen and lift up. But the authors don't stop out there. They also give the same exact assurance as well. Both sets of readers should press on because one day God will come for them. He will one day come to deliver them. And then, as both texts say in Isaiah and Hebrews, they will have free access to Mount Zion again and to uh, uh, amazing, unbelievable worship in Zion. Of course, when you get into the book of Hebrews in Hebrews 12, we find out that there are going to be myriads of angels worshiping God at this Mount Zion. So I think the takeaway for us from last week is to see how much our hope in Christ's soon return should motivate us in our struggle against sin. To put it starkly or frankly, I wonder how much it would affect us today if we knew that the Lord Jesus would return tonight. How would it help us in our struggle against our greatest sins? I'm sure that the imminent return of Jesus would give you grace to avoid most of the things, the entanglements and sins that normally tempt you. And so the author reminds them of this. From this point on in the text, in verses 13 through 17, the author is going to continue to give exhortations to them about how to respond to God's training. Don't be discouraged how to respond. I think it's obvious, of course, that we're in an unusual time together as followers of Jesus Christ today. We're in the middle of a pandemic. We're isolated in many ways, but this audience was also in a challenging time. 
It's obvious as you read uh, chapter 13 that the author of Hebrews is not even with them in Rome while they're suffering for the cause of Christ. As a matter of fact, I think Hebrews thir- uh, the, the epistle to the Hebrews is originally a letter that he writes to them. Uh, perhaps a letter that would take the place of one of their normal expositions as they would gather together. And so I'm thankful to be able to preach to you during this time as well. So we come to this point in the text. I want to look first at uh, the second challenge that he gives to them uh, in verse 13. Once you look down in your Bible there. It says, And make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. In verse 13, we're told to straighten our paths. Here the author uses an athletic metaphor again, and it appears to me that what he's doing is he's picturing the Christian life as a journey toward the heavenly city. And he calls us to make straight paths for our feet. We're not to turn to the left or the right, as I think this proverbial language uh, originally demonstrated in Proverbs 4. We're not to turn to the right or the left but we're to make straight paths for our feet. I think this language might uh, have carried one of two meanings. I, I think it might be that he's calling them to hurry along in their Christian journey. Take a straight line or make a straight course for your feet. It also might be that he is calling them to make things easier in their Christian journey or easier for others in the Christian journey. It'd be something like knock out all the impediments on the path of the way. Make straight paths for your feet. It's interesting to me, though, I think, that to figure out exactly what the author has in mind, you have to go into the second part of this verse, the second half. And there in, in the second half of verse 13, he says, So that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Here, I think one of the most significant questions for me that I just wrestled with all week, and perhaps is a significant one for you to consider, too, is what does the author mean when he talks about that which is lame? What is that? What is that which is lame? Well, the way I see it, you can understand this phrase in one of two ways. I honestly did not find much help in the commentary literature. They just kind of flew over this. And so this is how I see it. If you disagree with me, I guess you'll have to try to make an appointment with me. I think it could be when he says that which is lame, it might be that it's in reference to that which is weak in me. I would take this idea and say that this is an, I'd call this an individual reading of the text. So when I read the passage in this way, I think of my own weaknesses. It's my own hands, my knees, my feet that are weak or lame. So if you read it this way, what he's saying is that I must make straight paths with my feet so that my weaknesses will be healed when I reach the end of the race. Now, I think there's a better way to take this verse, however, and I think the best reading is what I would call a communal reading, not an individualistic reading. And so what is lame, I think, refers to those in the assembly who are weak. So we should make things easier, make straight paths for our feet so that the spiritually lame ones among us might not be completely overtaken in the journey of life, but might be healed. That's interesting to me if you're trying to make sense out of what this passage is, especially that question I just asked you. What does the author mean when he says that which is lame 
It's interesting to me that the word lame is, is used in the same chapter we spent so much time on last week outside as we were gathering together, Isaiah chapter 35. It's found in verse 6. And so I think that use of the word lame informs it here. Let me just remind you a few of those verses. You don't have to turn back there. But you remember, of course, the commands where Isaiah says, strengthen the weak hands and make, the feet, make firm the feeble knees. That's verse 3, but he continues. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come. Remember this? He will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and will save you. So what the author is saying is God's going to come and it's going to mean one of two things. If you're on his side, uh, he will save you. If not, he will come with judgment and recompense. But then keep reading in verse uh, number five and he says this. He says, then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame leap like a deer. I think following this passage, the author of Hebrews is imploring his assembly to strengthen and encourage one another and make things easier for others so that uh, they indeed, uh, others who are weak, might be healed when Jesus comes. I want you to remember the original situation of the author of Hebrews uh, that he's addressing here. Some of these professing believers were really struggling. They were going to abandon their commitments to Jesus because it was getting really difficult. So I think what the author is doing in verse 13 is he's telling them here, don't let people wander off to the left or the right. Don't let people pull away from their commitments to Jesus Christ. Make it as easy as we can for others in how we serve them. As members of Colonial Baptist Church, I think we share this same sort of commitment to one another in the body of Christ. This is why we encourage meaningful membership at Colonial Baptist Church. So if you see others faltering and failing in their walk with the Lord, you should get involved in their life and point them back to Jesus. That's good community. That's a healthy local assembly where you're looking out for those who are lame, you you don't want them to be completely overwhelmed. You long for them one day to be healed by Jesus Christ. And so I think it means stuff like this for us, Colonia. I think we'll be talking to each other in ways like this. I think we'll confront others and and maybe in kindness say, "You, you seem to be off the path. What's going on? How are you doing in your walk with the Lord? Your hands look like they're dragging. Your knees... Look like they're about ready to give in. You, you no longer talk much about Jesus. And you, you, you don't delight or in what you're discovering in the word like you used to. You dropped off in your commitments to uh, gathering together. And, or, or you see dangerously content without meaningful contact with other Christians. This second command here is that they're to make straight the paths so that the weak ones among them will be healed and not completely overcome. So we must follow this command. That's how we respond to the training, the discipline of God. When difficulties come, we look around, we look for others who look like they're just about ready to quit. And we try to make it easier for them. But then in verse 14, we come to another challenge Another way we should respond to the training of God. 
Look at verse 14. It says, strive for peace with everyone and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Okay, I'm not really good at alliteration. I think I've done it in about four sermons, but here you go. What we have so far is first, we must strengthen. Two, we must straighten. And third, we must strive. Okay, so remembering these three S's here, we must strive. And, and then the text tells us that we are to strive. When it says that, I, I think it means to pursue, to run after something. And in this text, there, there are two things. We should run after peace and holiness. The word peace itself normally describes uh, the harmony that comes from the wholeness that believers in Jesus receive from God. I think because of Jesus. It's the harmony that comes and the wholeness that comes to believers in Jesus that we get because, because of his work. And so to the state of being, the author explains that we should run after it with everyone. You see that in the text? With everyone. Everyone here means that we should try to cultivate harmonious relationships with believers and unbelievers alike through things like prayer and obedience and, and a genuine spirit of humility. We should strive or pursue after peace with everyone. Notice he does not say secure peace. We can't secure peace, but we can strive for it. We can pursue it. None of us can guarantee peace with another person because it takes two to have peace. There have been times in my Christian life and experience serving the Lord, maybe you can relate to this, uh, where, where I felt someone had an issue with me that they didn't like me, or they had some problem with, with me. And so in many of those cases, I, I went to the person and asked and would pray about it, and sometimes they just weren't willing to tell me what it is or to deal with the issues that they had with me. So in cases like that, uh, what I tried to do was to put their name on my prayer list and to pray for them. And to ask God regularly to first deepen my love for him or her. To love them unconditionally regardless of, of how they think of me. And then two, I ask God to work supernatural harmony in our relationship again. And so perhaps you can relate to this experience. If, if this describes some broken relationship that you're experiencing, please don't lose heart. There is one who can work supernaturally to bring wholeness to any relationship challenge. But regardless of what God does, leave it with him. Let their comments and criticisms or critiques of you go because you cannot secure peace. You, however, must be the one who's pursuing it. So as we look at this text, he says, strive for peace with everyone. Then he, then he also says, strive for holiness. The word holiness is often translated sanctification. This is the word for spiritual growth or sanctification. Uh, it can also be translated to be set apart from sin for God. I think many of you already know that. Now there's a sense in which this is what God does for us as believers when we get saved, right? Objectively, we obtain peace and holiness because we are in Christ. However, we know it's also true that in, in the spiritual life, it's a call not, not just to that objective uh, peace and holiness, but we're also challenged to pursue it as a community of followers with Jesus Christ. 
And so I think it's that pursuit of holiness, progressive holiness that the author's talking about here. And he adds to that that this, this sanctification is a prerequisite for anyone to be able to see God. Of course, that's because he's perfect, right? And someone must be thoroughly set apart. And so one day, ultimately, definitively, we will be holy. And so I think the author is basically telling us here, pursue it now. Pursue it now, because one day that will be what your existence uh, with God is like in heaven. You will be ultimately holy. And so this is the challenge. We are to strengthen and straighten. And then, as this text says, strive for peace and holiness. Now, I think there's one other important way that we should respond to God's training in our lives, and that's why I take the, the final three verses in this paragraph. So we'll look together at verses 15 through uh, 17. Let me read them for you here. To see to it that no one failed to obtain, no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Finally, in the text here, we learn that we should respond uh, the way the first three words of the ESV go. We should see to it. Okay, so uh, the S's are getting weak, weaker as we go along, right? Straighten, strengthen, strive, and see to it. I, I think this also carries imperatival force. We must look out or watch out for certain things in our own hearts and in the hearts of others in the assembly of believers we call our church. And I think it's great what the author of Hebrews does here because I, I love it when, when people not only tell you like, be careful, look out for something, but they also tell you exactly what to look out for. That's what he does, and you can see it very easily in your text. All you have to do is look for the words, that, no, in the ESV translation. I think there are other indicat uh, indicators in other translations. You should at least look for the word that in most translations. And so he says, see to it or watch out for three things. So you look at verse 15. One, that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Two, that no root of bitterness and three, verse 16, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy. Those are the three things that we should look out for. And, and if I were to summarize or combine these three things into one, I think these are three wrong ways to respond to God's training. Okay, so the author of Hebrews is writing this sermon out. He's giving, he's writing this letter and he's telling his people, okay, here are the four ways you should respond. And the fourth one actually is look around for the wrong ways to respond. Make sure these don't describe you. The first one is in verse 15. He says, we must watch out for people in the assembly who are failing to obtain the grace of God. See, he says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Here, I think failing to obtain could be translated to miss or to miss out on something. Here the author is concerned, I think, that some are gathered with the assembly who will miss out on God's grace found in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that he's been describing the whole way through the epistle. 
That is, I think that there were some who were attending their gatherings who were attending but were not possessing fully of Jesus. I hope you know that this problem still exists in churches today, including Colonial Baptist Church. It strikes me that just, I think just about every time we gather, there are likely people there who are with us in worship, but they're not genuine followers of Jesus Christ. This should not surprise us. They might be sitting next to their husband or their wife or a family member or, or some of the members of Colonial Baptist Church, but they're not true or genuine followers of his. There are some who encountered the difficulties and trials in their journey, and they do not maintain their commitment to Jesus. I think these people eventually walk away from their commitment to Jesus, and they fail to obtain the grace of God, as this text is saying here. That is, there are ones who have left us in the gatherings, and they have left their profession in Jesus, or these are ones who will do that in the future. To be honest with you, as I come to this passage at this particular point in the journey of our church in the middle of a pandemic, I, I must uh, confess that this is one of my concerns. Matter of fact, it's not just mine. I, I've been to pastors' meetings and pastors' conferences, and this is one of the greatest concerns of pastors right now in evangelical assemblies. Pastors are concerned that there were some who were attending our gatherings who will never be back. As a matter of fact, I was reading this week an article entitled, Five Types of Church Members Who Will Never Return After Quarantine. It's written by Tom Rayner, and he suggests that as many as 20 to 30 percent of those who formerly were members of evangelical gatherings will never be back to their church. As I read through the article, I couldn't help but think, I, you know, how could he be so confident in percentages like that? I don't know if that's just like an educated guess or what that is. But let's suppose that he's at right, at least for some. And so I am concerned. I think there's some so comfortable without meeting in the assembly or without cultivating relationship with other believers throughout the week that, that I'm concerned for their spiritual condition. Now, if you're an elderly person or you're, you're a person with a compromised immune system, please do not feel any guilt by this. None. Please. That's not the point. But it may be that there are others who just don't even care. They don't even care to go back and, and gather with believers again. I think it's those sort of people who are gravely close to failing to obtain the grace of God. I think people like this might tell me not to worry as a pastor. But men and women, I know how the subtlety of sin works. It's, it's, it deceives. And I know how Satan works. For instance, I know the people who are most likely in need of this warning would be the ones least likely to listen to a video sermon. Least likely. Right now, I'm exchanging emails with someone who used to be among us, who used to be here week after week, but now believes that he or she is completely and utterly lost beyond all hope. They used to be in the gatherings, but now they're utterly close to failing to obtain the grace of God. 
Won't you pray with me about some of your own friends and family who are dangerously close to walking away? We're to see to it that this doesn't happen. However, there are others, perhaps I think, that are even more dangerous to the health of the community of Jesus Christ. These, I I believe, do not leave the gatherings, but corrupt the gatherings from the inside. It's my belief that the final two that-no statements in the end of verse 15 and in verse 16 actually describe people who stay inside the gatherings, but who corrupt it from within. So near the end of verse 15, we see the second wrong response to God's training. Look in the middle of verse 15. It says, That no root of bitterness spring up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. See to it that this doesn't happen either, the author says. We should watch out for bitterness in the assembly that springs up and causes trouble and defiles many. Now, I want to look a little bit more closely at this text, and especially the language at the beginning. He he calls this bitterness a root of bitterness, which I think is a rather unusual uh, expression that deserves some attention. When the author uses this phrase, root of bitterness, it comes from two words, and I think that it is a metaphor that describes bitterness as something that is living and growing. That's what bitterness does. It's organic, like a plant it, or tree. It, it grows from its source. Now, it's interesting to me that the two words, root and bitterness, are, are only found in one other place. One other place in all of Scripture. And that is back in Deuteronomy chapter 29. Uh, so let me ask you to turn back there in your Bibles uh, for just a moment so we can see. I think that the author of Hebrews has this text in his mind as he uh, considers the root of bitterness or talks about the root of bitterness uh, in Hebrews chapter 12. So I think the text he has in mind is Deuteronomy 29 and verse 18. And so I want to look at this passage with you. I'll read verses 18 through 25 just to give us a feel of what's going on here. So from the words of Moses, he says, beware Lest there be among you a man or a woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away from the Lord our God to go and to serve the God of of those nations. Beware lest there be among you, and here it is, a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. One who, when he hears the words of the sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I will be safe though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. The Lord will not be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will smoke against that man, and the curses written in this book will settle down upon him, and the Lord will blot out his name under heaven. And the Lord will single him out from all the tribes of Israel for calamity in accordance with all the curses of the covenant written in the book of the law. And the next generation, your children will will rise up after you. And the foreigner who comes from a far land will say, when, when they see the afflictions of that land and the sickness which the Lord has made it sick, 
The whole land burned out with brimstone and salt, nothing sown and nothing growing where no plant can sprout and overthrow like that of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim which the Lord overthrew in his anger and wrath, all the nations will say, why has the Lord done this to the land? What caused the heart or the heat of this great anger? Then people will say, it is because they, or in this case even, he abandoned the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. Anyway, in this passage, Moses is given final instruction to the covenant people of God. He's nearing the end of his life, and he's composing this section about covenant renewal. And so he gathers all the people together, and he describes to them what the old covenant means for the Israelites and everyone who would want to be a part of it, everyone who's accompanying them. And so the key verse, I think, for Hebrews is this verse 18. And there, this verse is set up much like the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 12 designs it. If you look at the beginning of verse 18, he says, beware lest. You look down a little bit later in the text, in the same verse, he says, beware lest. In the Septuagint, those are the same exact words that the author of Hebrews uses when he says, see to it that. See to it that. Be, beware lest. And so he gives this first wrong response uh, in verse 18a. And I think that this might parallel what the author of Hebrews said about missing out on the grace of God. Beware that some will, will fail. In beginning of verse 18, he says, Beware lest there be any among you, a man or a woman, a clan or a tribe, whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of the nations. This is a warning against walking away from one's commitment to God to pursue after some idolatrous pursuit or other false god. I think that's similar to, to the author's warning. His first warning that they're to see to it. That no one fails to obtain the grace of God. But a second wrong response is in the middle of verse 18. So look again there. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. Here the second wrong response directly parallels what the author of Hebrews says in his second wrong response. Moses is confronting those who think they're safe by their very presence among the people. They think to themselves, as verse 19 says, I will be safe, though they're walking in the stubbornness of their own heart. Seems to me that the stubbornness of their own heart, their stubborn insistence upon disobedience is equivalent to the bitter root that Moses warns these people against. And so from Moses' perspective, there were some among the old covenant community who were stubborn and sinful and sure to face the curse of God. The curse is found in the book of the law. As a matter of fact, the text goes on to say that the Lord will not be willing to forgive this type of presumptuous, stubborn, hypocritical sinner, but rather that God, God's jealousy and wrath will come down upon them in the form of curses. They will face a judgment or overthrow like that of Sodom and Gomorrah, verse 23 says. And so men and women in this Old Testament text, I think Moses is warning of the dangers facing some who reject the covenant in the old covenant system by their lifestyle yet remain present among the people externally. 
As we go back to the book of Hebrews, I think it's very parallel to this. In the New Testament context, the author of Hebrews warns against those who are externally remaining among the covenant people, but respond to the difficulties and persecutions that come into their life by getting angry with God. So they're still attending, right? They're, they're, they're still uh, uh, you know, claiming to be a part of the assembly, but they don't understand how God would allow these things to take place in their life or, or that he would cause them perhaps even to happen. And so they won't submit to, the, to him. And they grow bitter or angry against him while in the gathering. I think that's when the author of Hebrews takes it a step further in describing the disastrous nature of this root of bitterness. For we learn that it not only springs up in their heart and that it causes trouble, but we see that that is not only trouble for the person himself, himself or herself. No, it's also a, a trouble that brings defilement to many people. I think this warning is against uh, anyone who defiles many in the gathering with his or her cancerous and cont- or contagious skepticism or critical spirit that's sourced in unbelief. These people remain among the people of God, but they question him. Further, because I think difficulties normally involve others in, in uh, the experiences I've had in, in, in helping others uh, with Bitterness and anger against God. Many times, I think that skepticism and bitterness demonstrates itself when they, when they slander others who have disappointed them or cause disputes in the body or sow gossip among the church, whether that slander and gossip and, and disputes are with other believers or those in leadership in the church. You see, what often happens in this sort of scenario is they pull down others with their sour bitter spirit you ever been around a person like that they, they just pull others down with their bitterness it's like a cancer that affects others it's like gangrene that spreads through the community and so the text says here we should beware we should look out for this don't allow this sort of sin to defile yourself or to defile your gathering Now, before we move along, let me just ask you some personal questions here. Have you been questioning and blaming God for difficulty that you've experienced? Are you angry at God for something that has happened to you? Do you accuse God or slander others because you're not responding properly to your trial? I think men and women, there are many people, perhaps some that We might perceive as maybe even more noble than yourself. That's possible. There are many people who have burned out and corrupted others with their sour, bitter, skeptical spirit and their cutting words. And so men and women, if this is you, if you're angry towards God, if you're bitter, finding yourself struggling with doubt and skepticism or unbelief, what you need is you need grace. You need Jesus. Jesus can free you from any bondage or poison that comes from within your heart or from any bondage or poison that comes from the circumstances that you face. This text says, see to it that no root of bitterness spring up, troubling you, and thereby many 
be defiled. Now finally, in verses 16 and 17, we're to be on the lookout for professing brothers and sisters in the assembly who are immoral and unholy. Look with me one last time at verses 16 and 17. We'll go quickly through this text. It says that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. I think the words here are quite clear. They are to uh, not respond to God's training by giving in to their self-centered passions and pursuing immorality and unholiness. The word immoral, I think, speaks of one who would break God's boundaries of sexuality, whether it's in thought or deed, and is unfaithful to God's call in their life, whether that call is to marriage and their marriage partner, or that call is to chastity and the state of singleness. It's one who steps beyond those boundaries and, and is unfaithful. The word unholy uh, is a word that normally is translated worldly or profane, a godless person. And so uh, see to it that no one behaves in these ways, that, 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 that no one is immoral or worldly or godless. That's what they're to be doing. Uh, to that, the author attaches uh, the example of Esau. You see that in your Bible? This is Esau, the twin son of Rebekah and Isaac. Uh, and Esau, of course, is the one who sold his birthright for a bowl of stew and a moment of weakness, or bowl of pottage. Uh, it's interesting to me, uh, you know, why Esau is in the text. You know, it seems, you know, is he an example of these things? Uh, the, the author of Hebrew, of course, believes that he is. I think perhaps the reason Esau is here is simply stated Esau is, is the exact opposite of the faithful in chapter 11. Uh, several of those faithful, we learned that they were willing to exchange what is seen in the here and now for, for their eternal riches and reward. But uh, Esau is different. He exchanged the unseen for his own immediate gratification. And he sold his birthright for a bowl of pottage. So that as you get down to verse 17, I think that later on when he's remorseful and he, he wants the blessing back from his father, he's not even able to get that back. I think Esau, as mentioned here, is an example of, of someone who, when, was, when he was discouraged or fatigued, gave in and decided to live for himself in his passions and desires. And, and so, men and women, I, I think the author of Hebrews is challenging his readers here. I think they're discouraged because they're facing stiff opposition. If we consider all the, the, the teaching of this text, I think some, no doubt, we're considering walking away from the community <clears throat> and the profession of faith in Jesus Christ. There were others in the gathering he, he knew that were probably so discouraged that they were becoming bitter and were corrupting others within the assembly with their sour spirit and cutting words. There are still others within the assembly that, who, who were perhaps attending the gatherings but were sexually immoral, not being faithful to their spouse in thought or deed and, or being uh, faithful to God's call upon them as a single man or woman. There are still others, I think, who are struggling and we're living in worldly and godless ways. And so as we come to this text and we consider these imperatives and challenges from the author of Hebrews, I ask you to examine your own heart this, this day. Examine your own heart. Do any of these things describe you? Uh, if they do, don't say, 
I'm safe uh, because I'm in the gathering. Don't say that. Don't say I'm safe because I go faithfully to church. Don't, don't say I'm safe, I'm beyond this because, you know, I made some sort of profession of faith in Jesus Christ in the past. Don't be deceived. Examine the nature of your own heart today. Or perhaps there are others in our church who would share with me a concern for another believer, a brother, a professing brother or sister. Perhaps it's your spouse or your friend. I suggest to you not just to wave off this this powerful and convicting text, this challenging text. Don't just wave it off, but ask that person that you care about. Talk to them about it. Get involved in their life so that they will not fail to obtain the grace of God. Let's pray together. Father, I would pray that you would bless uh, this sermon as it's received by Colonial Baptist church. I would pray for any uh, of those that I love who would be struggling to respond to the training or discipline of God. Perhaps they are going through difficult trials and afflictions now in the midst of our uh, pandemic. Perhaps it's leading them to grow bitter at who you are and what you're doing. Perhaps even their bitterness is corrupting other men and women in the assembly as they call question to your character or the integrity and character of another brother or sister in private conversations. Perhaps they gossip or complain about one of the leaders in the assembly. Maybe it's manifesting themselves and just uh, in this difficulty being uh, unwilling to keep uh, striving for holiness. And so they're uh, giving in to sexual immorality or immoral impulses. They're not being faithful to their spouse in some way or another. Perhaps others uh, are struggling and they're living in worldly and godless ways. Lord, I pray that you would do the work through your spirit to show them where that's true. I pray that you'd open their eyes. And I pray that they would live lives that reflect your character. And then, Lord, help uh, those in our body who at this point, present moment are spiritual. They're walking with you. They're walking close to you. They have a desire to help others. I I pray that you would lead them to pray for others, to pray for their spouse or their friends or other believers, uh, professing believers in, in our gathering. I pray that they would get involved in others' lives so that they might help them not to fail to obtain the grace of God. Lord, we pray that you would do this for the honor and glory of your own name in and through Colonial Baptist Church. In Jesus' name, amen.